Information. It's everywhere. Billboards, TVs, radios, social media. It's in every single one of our pockets, on our phones, competing for our attention. Yet with so much information out there, from so many different sources, how can we know what to trust? And how can we avoid the online ambush? Welcome to Cove Thoughts. Hi, I'm Greg Colton, and in today's episode of Cove Thoughts, we're going to be talking about how potential adversaries are using the internet to lure you into an online ambush, targeting you through the very information that you provide them. We're going to explore how this is part of a new contest conducted underneath the detection threshold, but always present. A contest not just of information, but to shape your very understanding of knowledge. A contest called Cognitive Warfare. We're also going to give you some very practical tips to help you avoid these dangers, anti-online ambush drills if you like. But first, a story. In 2018, the world received a massive wake-up call. Cambridge Analytica, a British tech company, had been harvesting data from individuals' Facebook accounts without their knowledge. The data included details on users' identities, friend networks and likes. The idea was to map personality traits based on what people had liked on Facebook and then use that information to target audiences with digital ads. That data was detailed enough to create psychographical profiles of the subjects and their locations. This was then sold to political campaigns. It allowed them to identify potential swing voters and develop targeted messaging more likely to resonate. In effect, it used information that individuals voluntarily put onto the internet to create messages most likely to result in them changing their beliefs, perceptions or behaviours including who to vote for. The Cambridge Analytica case showed that in the contest for influence, we are all targets. We can also all be our own worst enemies. So why is this important for the army? Well, information warfare, the battle of narratives, has always been a part of war. Throwing visiting envoys down wells or placing the severed heads of your enemies on spikes outside your castle walls send pretty strong, if rather unsubtle, messages. Messages which are designed to influence the behaviour of would-be enemies. However, the advent of the digital age saw a significant change in the conduct of information warfare. With digital devices in everyone's pockets, would-be influencers no longer needed to concentrate on targeting decision-makers or political leaders. They could now directly connect with ordinary people on an individual level, without having to go through an intermediary such as a newspaper editor or TV station. Of course, this means they can target members of the military the same way. It is this element of precision which makes the digital age so different, as Dr Emily Bienvenu, 
a senior analyst at the Defence Science and Technology Group, explains. One of my first observations um, as an analyst and researcher in this area would be that a lot of the research and analysis to date really focuses on um, foreign competitors' misinformation campaigns and approaches a lot of um, the ideas of misinformation in the old framework of uh, perhaps propaganda. Um, But these digital vectors offer something more than... um, means to transmit information, they offer a way of better understanding and then socially engineering people's behaviour with precision. This has the potential to change not just how we perceive the world around us, but the very foundations of knowledge on which our assumptions and understanding are based. The effects on democratic nations of societal fractures based on the online manipulation of populations could be profound. This intellectual contest is sometimes referred to as cognitive warfare. Dr Zach Rogers is from the Jeff Bleich Centre for the US Alliance in Digital Technology, Security and Governance at Flinders University in Adelaide. I asked him just how cognitive warfare works. We're really talking about the architecture of cognition and the architecture of knowledge which is occurring through cyberspace. So when I talk about cognitive warfare and as, a, as a, an extension or perhaps moving on from the concept of information warfare, in cognitive warfare, we're really talking about epistemology and how we put together knowledge and how information as a concept plays a role in that um, architecture of knowledge and how we think about concepts and institutions, particularly with regard to things like authority and legitimacy and governance and democracy and all of these all of these concepts have have their roots in the way we put knowledge together. And so cognitive warfare, Greg, or for me, or even epistemological warfare, is that the digital age is causing really interesting and difficult to understand shifts in the way we put knowledge together. So a cognitive war, or as an extension of, or, or a surpassing of information war, is that we're, we're in a bit of a, bit of a bind in terms of the way we understand some of the concepts that are important to society, like democracy and rule of law and and legitimacy and authority. All of these things are more shaky and a bit more um, protean now because the way we put knowledge together as individuals, as communities and as a society and even as a nation is really shifting with this massive shift that's occurred very rapidly over the last 20 years to ubiquitous digital use. So cognitive warfare is not only very real, but it is a very serious threat. The danger comes when digital algorithms perpetuate the amplification of cognitive bias by showing people the same messages repeatedly over long periods of time. Clint Watt is a distinguished research fellow at the Foreign Policy Research Institute in the United States, and he's also author of the book Messing with the Enemy, Surviving in a Social Media World of Hackers, Terrorists, Russians and Fake News. He's termed this phenomenon preference bubbles. Preference bubbles are the natural extension of of what we used to call like search engine bubbles, or essentially that you get into your own information bubble based on how an algorithm feeds you. But 
I only believe that is half true at this point. A preference bubble is a combination of when an algorithm combines with your choices to keep providing you things, what you want from people that look like you and talk like you. And that's how social media is designed. So uh, there's a guy named Eli Pariser who, who kind of talked about the filter bubble of Google, you know, 10 years ago. And that if you search in Google uh, over and over again, Google will t return results or uh, any of them really, you know, any of these searches return results based on what you search for. But preference bubbles are different because now they're based on all of your preferences, your likes, your shares, who shares stuff with you. And that goes across Facebook, Twitter, any of the social media platforms. They are designed to keep giving you more content that you like. And once you get into that bubble, there's like serious digital tribalism that sits in. And I think that's the, the three things I talk about in the book are one, uh, you get clickbait populism where people try to win the crowd by saying things they think the crowd will like. And this actually changes and distorts the way uh, people start communicating because they want more likes and shares and retweets. And so they start gaming what the system will give of more likes, shares, and retweets, and then not saying other things. And it, it, it provides power to those that can accrue the most likes and shares. And I think the second part is the social media nationalism, that digital tribalism. People are beginning to choose their own identity, not based on what they physically are, but what they are in the virtual world. You know, hashtags, avatars, bios, causes that they believe in, whether they actually do anything about those causes or not. And then I think the third part uh, is really the death of expertise, which is the belief that any one person is as smart as any one person on any topic in the world because they have access to so much information on the Internet. And that's uh, really come to play as a super dangerous phenomenon here with this COVID-19 you know, outbreak and pandemic around the world. And so those three things sort of combine together and all of them work against democracy uh, in parallel and sort of amplify the divisions that are going on uh, across democracies right now. Undermining an individual's perception of knowledge or what they believe is actually true undermines the very fabric of trust that connects them to their families, their peers, the society they belong to and the nation which governs them. Indeed, in many ways, trust is the strategic resource which binds together democratic societies. Emily Bienvenue again. So I guess there's two things there. This is partly about changing what people think through um, better understanding what makes them tick, what their preferences are, and there's, yes, being able to nudge that behaviour through the use of bots and algorithms. And not only that, but quite simply just the, some of the mechanisms that are embedded in the digital platform, so what we might call referral mechanisms. The other point to be made here in terms of what is the risk to democracy, it's not just about these ideas and how they are transmitted through these platforms, but there's a deeper, more insidious problem presented here because these technologies are designed to exploit and manipulate for profit and politics. They run contrary to the very notion of democracy. They break down that social contract not only trust in the democracy, how other states perceive democratic states or how other people might perceive democratic states, but the trust that exists amongst people in democracies and the basic conventions on which they rest. So things like open, transparent systems. So digital platforms provide the perfect medium for conducting cognitive warfare. 
But what does this mean for members of the Australian Defence Force? Major General Marcus Thompson is the head of the Information Warfare Division, and I asked him about the threat to our people. Yeah, thanks, Greg. Well, I mean, in terms of describing the the, the threat that, um, that 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 our our forces and, and our soldiers uh, face uh, in this in this domain, it's it's uh, it's pretty complex. You know, it's uh, a lot of it comes um, through through social media. Um, you know, we've we've uh, uh, professional militaries have, have, have practiced uh, psychological operations, um, deception uh, operations. You know, there's nothing there's nothing new about any of that. Uh, of course, what we're seeing these days is the uh, is those activities being conducted in this in this relatively new media of cyberspace, um, and that that uh, that provides the threat with a. Uh, an opportunity to of speed and scale, uh, and that's that's the that's the nature of the of the new operating environment. And I, I would say up front that it's as relevant uh, in a home location uh, as it is in a in a deployed uh, location. Whereas some of these techniques, you know, were really only relevant uh, in a deployed location, you know, some years ago. But but nowadays, uh, you know, predominantly because of the the growth of, the, of, of technology, um, our use of the internet and, uh, and social media um, means that these threats are, are, uh, are manifesting in, in home location. It's clear then that there's a threat and it's constant. It's not linked to a deployment or to one malign actor. Instead, it's always present and from numerous sources. A myriad of online ambushes waiting for you to blunder into their cognitive engagement areas. So how do we counter this threat? Well, there are two key aspects. Let's term the first one proactive protection. The need to limit the information out there that an adversary can use for precision micro-targeting against us. This will reduce the ability for that adversary to set the online ambush in the first place. And I asked General Thompson how we can all address this through developing organisational and individual resilience. Well, I think institutional and organisational resilience is is very very important uh, in the in the in the contemporary operating environment. But I would say that that it, it ultimately it starts with individual resilience in 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 this environment and people thinking through yeah you know, individuals thinking through you know what 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 am I actually putting out there. In cyberspace, what am I posting on online? You know, is that really necessary? What am I freely giving away that a professional analyst with a targeting mindset might be able to turn around and use against me? And and when I say professional analyst with a targeting mindset, now yeah, that could be a foreign intelligence service. It could be a a criminal element. Um, yeah, it, 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 anyone or anything that uh, that that might wish uh, uh, ill a, a, against us. Uh, and uh, there are some technical pieces to this, too, Greg. And and I would say that that some good digital hygiene. You know, will will help build that um, that basis for for individual and collective resilience. I mean, I mentioned earlier. I mean, what are you posting on and sharing online? How do you keep yourself, your mates, and your family safe uh, in 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 cyberspace? You know, so that you're not giving the threat uh, a, a a free kick. 
um, so to speak. Um, you know, from a technical perspective, you know, d- don't be don't be reusing passwords for different devices or or different accounts. Make sure your social media accounts are set to private, not public. Make sure that your de- your personal electronic devices, your, your your phone, your smartphones, have have the privacy uh, uh, settings uh, all locked down. Um, if you're connecting to a public Wi-Fi or to a Wi-Fi full stop, is it safe? I mean, you know, should you really be using Using public Wi-Fi, um, you know, thinking twice about about what's what's posted online. Now there are some there are some resources that that, that people can use to help. And uh, and my team here in uh, Information Warfare Division have published what we've called a field guide to online security. Um, and it's published on the um, the Defence Protected Network, uh, and so so anyone with uh, with DPN access can can just jump on and search for the field guide to online security. It's on the Joint Cyber Directorate um, uh, site, and and that guides people through how to lock down uh, uh, your privacy settings for for each of the uh, social media. Um, applications, how to lock down your phone, whether you're using a, a, an iPhone or, a, or an Android device, how, what settings you should have in place to, to, to help protect yourself, how to use virtual private networks and, and other techniques that, uh, that, that I, I think that, um, that, uh, that, that people will find, um, find of interest. If proactive protection is the first part, the second is much harder. We all leave a digital footprint every time we go online. While we can limit that footprint through the measures General Thompson outlined, we will never completely eliminate it. So, what do we do if we think we are reading something that has been designed to manipulate our understanding or emotions? What do we do if we find ourselves in the online ambush cognitive engagement area? Well, we need to think critically rather than emotionally, So let's call our immediate action drill reactive reflection. Pausing to critically reflect will give us space to assess whether we are actually being targeted. Siobhan Hinyu has been an ABC journalist for over 15 years, including as a foreign correspondent in New Delhi and reporting on the build-up to the liberation of Mosul from ISIS in Iraq. She says the first two things we should examine are the source of the information and what it's trying to achieve. Well, when uh, journalists publish information, the golden rule of thumb, which has never changed, is that you want to establish a reliable source and you want to corroborate uh, either their information or um, more commonly now the imagery and the video perhaps that they provide. Uh, So the two things that you're really looking for, uh, if you boil it down, are the origin of the information and the intent behind the information. And those two things, origin and intent, apply just as much to journalists as they should apply increasingly to consumers of news. Uh, When you're reading uh, a blog or an article online, you want to think about the origin in terms of the platform that you read it on. Was it a reputable news site? Was it BBC or the New York Times or was it a um, blog you've never heard of? And you want to look at that byline, look at that author um, and see if you can check who they are, if you've heard of them before, where they might come from. And it's important for both journalists and news uh, consumers 
to, to search consistently for those authoritative, credible and independent sources. And I always urge people to read widely. I think if you consume from a variety of sources, that only helps your overall picture of things. But you must always have that sense of cynicism um, behind your eyes going, is this an independent or a credible source? And how can I dig a little bit deeper to kind of interrogate that? And then when it comes to that second branch of intent, uh, whether it's someone who's giving you information and hoping that you might publish a story, or whether you've seen an image that's gone viral on social media, and you're thinking of republishing it, you also have to think about intent, why the person is giving you that information or why um, so-and-so in a suburban backyard has posted this um, emotive picture or informative picture about anything, whether it be a weather event or perhaps they've filmed what they purport to be a crime in progress or something. So there has to be an element of of trying to work out what the motivation uh, behind the sharing of that information is. Once we have checked the source and its intent, it is useful to reflect whether the post is trying to inform us or whether it is trying to elicit an emotion. If it is provoking an emotional response, this may well be the result of precision micro-targeting. You are seeing it because someone wants you to, based on your online profile. It's easy to believe because it confirms your existing view. This is particularly pertinent for photos and video. However, there are some readily available tools that can help you decipher whether it is genuine or not. Yeah, that's when the red flag should really go up. But unfortunately, it doesn't with a lot of consumers. And we know that confirmation bias is a real problem when it comes to news consumption. Um, and the other issue is simply that people are consuming news and information within kind of information silos. Um, that is that in the good old days, we had, you know, um, newspaper editors or TV bulletin editors acting as gatekeepers. So, the consumer is really becoming key um, in this in this fight to differentiate between misinformation and disinformation and verified journalism. And so the big questions are around, you know, um, media literacy of the population and how do we kind of prepare people um, to be open to the threats of misinformation and disinformation. But it it does still rest with the individual to be able to to look at those those red flags popping up where they see perhaps um, a website or a blog or a domain that they can't identify um, with a known news outlet. Um, perhaps you can't work out what country it uh, originates from. And those are the kind of moments where you have to step back and just do a simple Google search and see if the same information pops up anywhere else in a more reputable outlet. There are particular problems around images uh, because they evoke emotion and we know that images and video in particular go viral very fast. It's very easy to get sucked in by um, evocative imagery. And so uh, some of the, the standard 
practices that journalists should engage in are things like reverse image searches. So using tools like Google reverse image search, or there's one called Tandex, which is excellent, is something that everyone can access. And so when, you know, Aunt Mabel shares for the 13th time that shot of the um, the sharks in the, in the flooded shopping mall, that's an image that you can reverse search to find where it comes from um, or how old it is, because we see often um, in natural disasters and in war zones that uh, images that have come from prior conflicts or incidents get reused over and over again. But it does take time and um, hitting that pause button is sometimes the big challenge for both journalists and readers of the news. This idea of pressing a pause button is an important part of reactive reflection. As Zach Rogers points out, information distancing is a useful tool we can use to break clean from the online ambush. I know we're in the age of, of COVID-19, Greg, so uh, what social distancing has entered our vocabularies. I was just reading the other day, someone was bringing up the, the um, concept of information distancing. And I think it's an interesting um, um, concept to, with regard to your question. Because cyberspace is a designed space, and as, as I said, it is it is inherently manipulative. The the dominant internet model is one where attention is harvested for clicks. Those clicks are analysed, and those an analysis leads to predictions and modification of human behaviour. That's that's now not in dispute. That is literally the uh, the dominant business model we are we have come to get used to got used to in the in the age of the internet. But information distancing. So what about can we be more aware of um, how we are manipulated online? If, if you're using a, a social media platform and you're finding that for some reason you're feeling um, you're feeling a bit wound up or you're feeling a bit a bit jazzed up or a bit manipulated, that's something I think is not beyond people to be aware of. And then you might ask yourself, well, why am I? I'm just looking at a bunch of ones and zeros and a graphic user interface on a digital object in front of me, and all of a sudden I'm having these emotional and psychological reactions. That's a bit strange. And I think that's perhaps a point where people could implement some information distancing. They could just, well, put your phone down, go for a walk, go and talk to a human being, things like that. Just little interventions we can all make in um, these attention harvesting um, methodologies, which I think are not beyond individuals and families and communities to, to implement and think about. The internet gave the world's population unprecedented access to information. And the modern mobile phone put that information directly into our pockets. Yet, the same environment which offers so much has become an intellectual battleground, one where anonymous adversaries seek to change your very perceptions of knowledge through cognitive warfare. The good news is we can limit the threat of this digital battle space. By practising proactive protection and being conscious of our digital footprint, we can limit the amount of information available to an adversary to conduct precision micro-targeting. This will help us avoid the online ambush in the first place. However, if we do find ourselves reading something provocative, something that doesn't feel quite right, then we can go through our counter-online ambush drills of reactive reflection. Who wrote the piece, and are they accountable? What is the intent of the piece? Is the language or photo factual or emotive? Does it confirm what I already believe? 
Have I cross-checked it with a quick Google or reverse image search? Perhaps, most importantly, before I comment, repost or accept it as fact, do I need to step away and conduct some information distancing, giving myself time to gain some perspective? These simple steps will help us all survive online ambushes in an era of constant information and cognitive warfare. Well, I, I, Greg, I'll just say as we as we wrap up that um, look, I, I welcome this discussion. You know, we need to be having open discussions uh, about about this topic and and uh, and and about our vulnerabilities in the information environment. Um, full stop. I think we all need to be working together, um, individually and collectively, to 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 build to build resilience. Uh, against threats in this space. I'm talking about um, uh, threats against a unit, threats against the army, indeed threats against uh, the, the nation, um, threats against ourselves, threats against our family, threats against our, our, our friends. This, this resilience is, is truly a team sport and we all need to be, all need to be on it. Um, I, I think, uh, you know, I'll I just, I just, Conclude by saying, I think this is, you know, we really need to be thinking of our, our individual responsibilities uh, in, in that context. Um, and I would just say that to, to paraphrase a famous quote, you know, that individuals might not be interested in, in information warfare, but information warfare is certainly interested in you. Cove Thoughts is produced by the team at The Cove, part of the Australian Army's Professional Military Education Network. For more information, visit www.cove.army.gov.au. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the contributors and do not necessarily reflect the position of the Australian Army, the Department of Defence or the Australian Government.